So he was cheating. Hmm. He was telling him moves. Yes. Oh, wow. But this was, this was rather common, I think, in the past, yeah? Oh, extremely like, common. Uh, also from my childhood, I remember there were a lot of suspicions about cheating. And it seems now that it's more public, it actually became a bit better. Now that yeah. it's more, people are more you know, cognizant about how big of a problem cheating is. Welcome back, guys, to the C-Squared podcast. We're finally back in uh, person. We have a very special guest today. Uh, we have the one and only Levon Aronian. He is a world champion, uh, pretty much a man that needs absolutely no introduction. Levon, welcome to the C-Squared podcast. Thank you very much, Christian. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and especially to be recognized as a world champion. <laughs> you have been, I've done my research. Yeah, you've been uh, two times world champion, of course, Olympic gold medalist uh, with team of uh, Armenia. You have so many accolades. Uh, but first of all, you're just such a nice guy. So that's why we wanted you here. Thank you, guys. Thank you um, Levon, let's start a with your early beginnings in the world of chess. Tell us how you started chess, who brought chess to your attention, who put you on this path? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually from a chess kind of family. I mean, we always loved chess. Uh, so my grandpa played, my maternal grandpa, my uncle played, my mom plays, my own plays. And there was always this fascination about uh, chess, especially, you know, um, my grandfather obviously witnessed uh, Petrosian boom, as we call it. And so my, my, when, whenever we would go to the village, uh, which is actually closer to Tbilisi than to Yerevan. I mean, mm. So it's the northern Armenia. Uh, my grandpa would try to teach me, which never actually worked because I love checkers and, you know, uh, and I was from very early age, very competitive. So uh, I always wanted to play checkers only. And uh, then uh, I think it, I was, it was summer holidays. I was about to turn nine. We were visiting my paternal grandparents in Belarus. And uh, I was annoying my older sister she's six and a half years older than me and she said okay i have to do something to this guy so <laughs> she told me game of chess and that was it <laughs> from that moment i was <laughs> not bothering her anymore oh lily take me with you to play i don't want to stay here alone <laughs> and then i started playing with myself and then uh, i told my parents can you take me to a chess school when we come back mm -hmm. And my parents promised me, and uh, this was 1991, so almost collapse of Soviet Union, mm -hmm. very close. That's the year I was uh, born. Yeah. yeah. So, you see, <laughs> you started chess, I was born a great year, 1991. <laughs> and the, 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 my mom, maybe it was my dad, I don't remember, one of my parents, they took me to the, the House of Pioneers. Mm -hmm which is a Soviet establishment. And there was a, some kind of a little club for kids. I mean, my first coach, she, I can't say she knew a lot about chess. She was 
I would say first category player. Mm -hmm. Not so bad. But the, the important thing that she did, which I really value up today, she made sure I know the notation very well. Mm. I think that's extremely important. Yeah, you can visualize a lot of things. That's highly important. Yeah, and then, you know, later it was kind of... Uh, I mean, uh, it's a long story, an interesting <laughs> story, and uh, yeah. Do you have a clear memory of your first competitive game? <laughs> so, I think I was playing in that club with little kids. Mm. And then uh, I think my mom bought me a book of Petrosian. And then I started reading it, you know. And then uh, one day I came home and I said, Mom, I played like Petrosian today. Mm. And then she said, Oh, how come? Well, I said, I started with first C4, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, then, I mean, I, you know me, guys. I, I had so much confidence yeah, yeah. in me. That's good. That's a good thing. Always. And I came to the club one day and I said, I invented this puzzle, which is made in one. <laughs> <laughs> I was so proud. Was the you puzzle know? with like long castle or something like that, like a difficult no, one? I, I don't even it... remember. Maybe under promotion or something. Okay. But okay. I was so incredibly proud, thinking that you know, <laughs> I'm great. But my first, I think my first tournament I played was actually Armenian Championship under ten. Ah, okay. So it was already a very important event. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know it was important or mm -hmm. not. Maybe I played some other tournaments. I'm not so sure. But one of the first ones, mm -hmm. because I was, well, I was nine at that moment. So, so you had already been learning chess for quite a while before you played your first big event, right? No, actually. It was actually half a year. Oh, okay. And I won that one. You won the under 10? Yes. In your first, first year of participation? Yes. That's pretty good. And uh, was oh, it... Okay, it was, it was actually, I mean, I won it, but it was... Not fair. I mean, you know, this was like uh, during that time. Uh, this was like... Put your microphone a little bit oh, closer. Yeah. Just so, a little so, bit closer. Yeah, so yeah. this was like the Wild West. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm playing this tournament and I'm representing some school. Um, and we're competing with kids from other school. And, you know, this is all uh, government mm -hmm. kind of uh, backed things. Yep. So it's important you get like some sort of grants for your school performing well. And Gabby, who's on the first place, Gabriel Sargisian, who's yeah, of course. far more experienced than me. So I was competing with Gabby and Varush. Varush Akobian. Yes. Yeah. And so Gabby, is lead he's beaten me in this tournament. He's leading with half a point ahead of me or maybe we're on the same points before the last round and he's playing against the guy who's on the last place who has half a point and this is for Duisburg whoever wins goes to Duisburg at the European Championships yes 
Uh, uh, world Championships. World Championships. 1992. Yeah. 1991 was in Mamaya, I think. Yeah, the, the, the thing with, especially in Europe, the thing with this national championship, youth championships, mm -hmm. is that they pay for one of the either European championship yeah. or the World Championship. Yes, Whoever yes, yes. Win is, wins it can choose. They can go to the World Championship or the European. At least that's how it was in Romania. So, so it was almost the same Very system similar. here. Yeah. So... And this is the first event we don't have to compete with Russian players, Soviet players, anybody. So this is like unique opportunity to go. And so I'm playing against somebody, I don't know, I don't remember. And Gabi is clear to win and to go to take the first place. I might be second. But, but if you get second, at least you get the European, right? We were not sure back then. Mm. But little did I know that the coach, I mean, the head of the school, was actually hinting that guy who was in the last place. Oh, wow. And Gabi got into a completely losing position. And this kid offered him a draw. I won my game. And I went to the tournament. So he was cheating. Hmm? He was telling him moves. Yes. Oh, wow. But this was, this was rather common, I think, in the past, yeah? Oh, extremely like, common. Also, from my childhood, I remember there were a lot of suspicions about cheating. And it seems now that it's more public, it actually became a bit better. Now that yeah. it's more, people are more, you know, cognizant about how big of a problem cheating is. And I found this out, I mean, much later. Because we were all wondering, why couldn't he beat this kid? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Gabby mm -hmm. found it out maybe when he was already Grandmaster. And you, were you guys like friends at that point already? Uh, you and well, Gabby? Well, we were competing. Or? We were competing. No, you know, so you weren't on like chatting were you, you on chatting terms or like were you hanging out after the rounds and analyzing? i think it's very or? competitive very I mean, competitive we're a, mm. we're a chess country yeah it's very, and i remember so i mean my uh, parents uh, soviet union collapsed so my parents lost their jobs but uh, i mean they they could keep their jobs but they were basically getting the salary that was enough to buy maybe one kilogram of onions. Mm. So my father went to Russia, you know, taking any jobs. And my mom was pushing me to become a chess player. But anyway, it's a funny story. So my pa the parents of the other kids were very angry at me because I had, um, I was extremely thin because we, we were poor. Mm. So I would always like... Uh, have like uh, blood running through my nose, you know, during the game. So my mom would like, uh, she made sure to look for somebody to sponsor me in order to buy some chocolates. Mm -hmm. And during the game, I was always eating a chocolate. And the other kids, uh, you know, didn't get that. I mean, they could. And their parents were always complaining. They're saying, look at this kid. He's opening his chocolate and our kids want it and they cannot concentrate on <laughs> it was a twix bar i remember yeah, yeah up to yeah, date yeah. it was maybe the tastiest thing i ever eaten yeah, uh, twix are great <laughs> <laughs> back in the day yeah no that's uh that's an amazing story and after that what was your international first I would assume international competition was uh, the upcoming World Youth Championship. Yes. Under, was that still under 10? or? Yeah, yeah. It was under 10. Maybe it was the first time they started doing under 10s. Mm -hmm. Because it was after, before that it was under 12 or like what I was it? I think it was cadets. 
So under Juniors? 14, probably yeah. another 20. Yeah, I think like that. Yeah, yeah. And now they do all age categories, I think. Oh, know, and now on, it's under, under eight. eight so. Under six, yeah. I'm not sure about that, but... <laughs> I eight, think under eight. I think under eight is the youngest, right? I should under prepare eight. my daughter for under six already. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I'm sure we're going to touch on that uh, So you, you mentioned as well. that your family didn't have, have much money when you were growing up. Did you get any government support? To help with chess, or was uh, it your family the, drive, the, driving that? The government was collapsing. So, in order to buy some books, uh, we, I mean, my parents sold their library. My mom sold uh, any jewelry she had just to get some of this. And so, so I'll tell you why, uh, you know, I had such a quick progress because, you know, to be playing chess for six, seven months and Winning under 10, even though it's uh, in a not in the most convincing manner, uh, is strange. So, this coach that I had in Armenia, uh, I think her, um, um, in the House of Pioneers, mm -hmm. I think her daughter was uh, dating a strong chess player for quite some time. And then she said, she said to my parents, okay, this kid is way too good. You have to transfer him. Mm -hmm. Because I grew up in a neighborhood that is very far from the center of Yerevan. It takes like 40 minutes there. Uh, and it's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say the slums, mm. but uh, not the richest part of the city. Mm. And so she said, okay, you have to transfer the kid to good good mm -hmm. coach and so we went uh, to the chess club and she said go to this coach he's a strong player he's dating my daughter and this was Melik mm -hmm. Melik said gotcha. ah, yes yes and well Melik was uh, I think he's 12 years older than me, so he was fairly young. So mm -hmm. I'm 10 years old, uh, he's 22. Yeah. And uh, what happened, he moved, he was a refugee from Baku, because we had uh, some ethnic problems, Armenians, Azerbaijanis, and he moved to Yerevan to study, Soviet Union collapsed, and all of the dormitories became privatized. Mm -hmm. Something that people could stay in became property of some people. You know, I mean, it's not government anymore. And then you have to pay, yeah. It, and it's going he to be had nowhere to stay. Yeah. And my parents said, why don't you come and stay with us? We try to give you everything we have. And you coach our son in return. So yeah, Melik lived uh, in my family for five years. How strong was he? You, you mentioned he was 22 at that point. Was he a grandmaster already? Uh, no, no. I think he was, I mean, he was definitely very strong. Yeah. But like an IM level. Mm. That's probably all you need at that point anyway. I mean, you're just growing as a chess player. And he, I would assume, was very cultured as well, coming from a Soviet Union background. And, and also, you know, uh, 
the school in Baku was traditionally very strong. Yeah. Lots of Armenian coaches, Jewish coaches, uh, Russian coaches, Azeri coaches, but it was like a big center because, well, there was oil and it was a rich city. Mm. And therefore, he knew uh, lots of coaches of Kasparov and uh, he would always go to um, sessions in Botvinnik school because he was one of the talented guys. And uh, of course, it uh, brought a whole new meaning. I mean, he, he coached, Meli coached so many uh, players after me. And all of them uh, have a special Melik's touch, which is, I think, uh, typical. They're all very tactical players mm. and can uh, play uh, blindfold well. Mm. This is something we've been practicing a lot with Melik. But that's rather unusual for Armenian players, right? Because the, the stereotype is more positional style, I guess, coming from Petrosian, Petrosian times, that Armenian players are very positional and strategic players. Oh, yeah, but look, uh, that's the interesting thing. So, Gabi and me, uh, our coaches were... Um, so, Gabi's coach was Ashot Nadanya, mm -hmm. who was also from Baku, and Melik was also from Baku. So, we never played the French. <laughs> we never played D4. <laughs> you didn't play D4? Never. Ah, so when did you switch? Because I've always known you as a closed opening type player. Oh, I think I started playing D4 when I was maybe 16. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nadanyan is famous for his... Uh, Grunfeld? I think his, he has his Knight uh, A4, right? This is yes. his, his famous invention. Oh, he has Grunfeld. many inventions, many interesting ideas. He's, uh, he was also one of those promising juniors, like Malik. Yeah. But of course, when you're a refugee, chess is the last thing on your mind, mm. you know, when you're running from the war. Mm. So they never became uh, very strong mm -hmm. because of that. Speaking of those early challenges um, for your family, financial struggles and things of that nature, did you feel the impact of that at that age? Did you uh, contextualize that or you didn't really think about it? your job was to just play chess and you understood that you were enjoying playing chess and uh, you know it was so it was basically what was happening the whole empire is collapsing yeah well, especially in armenia there is ongoing war we also had devastating earthquake in 1988 so nothing is working everything is falling down and at that moment we have no electricity, no water, no heating. Mm. What are you going to do? That forces you to pretty much to mature, yeah? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, of course. And I remember I was um, nine. I won that tournament. And my parents told me, today you're going to get rid of your toys. Mm. They told me, pack your toys. I had this little beautiful, uh, I would say, not a bag, but like a case that my father made for me. Because my father being a physicist, he, but he's also a 
crazy handyman. <laughs> he does everything. <laughs> and so my dad made this thing for me and he said, pack it and we have to give it to somebody who you've never met. So we went to some house of some kid that I've never met before and we gave him my toys. And that was it. Mm. It was time to... <laughs> To move Focus. on from toys to chess, yeah? Yes. Uh, the chess pieces basically became your toys at and, that point. Yeah, and what my mom did, she quit her job and she started knocking on every single door looking for sponsorship. You know, she would spend uh, six, seven hours a day going to different, you know, like uh, government institutions or you know, some rich people's houses, trying to tell them, okay, this is a kid, he's very talented, he needs support. Mm. Mm. But it's very difficult to make that case, right, that you are very talented. You just started playing chess. I mean, you're nine. <laughs> yeah. How could they understand whether you are... I mean, I understand your parents from your parents' perspective, <laughs> obviously, but how about the sponsors? How did they get to understand that? How did your parents convince the sponsors to support <clears throat> So, my mom, she's very educated mm -hmm. and very motivated and a great uh, motivator and somebody who can actually convince people. Mm. And I think that's what she was doing. She was going there and, you know, when there is so much uncertainty about the future, People like to believe that there is their contribution. I mean, she wasn't like asking for $1,000. Yeah. She was asking for $20. This was a huge amount. You know, and for these people who have, um, I don't know, some businesses, some different uh, government positions, it's really nothing. Yeah. I mean, and so they, they would... Uh, <laughs> I mean, after one month or two months, everybody knew her. She knew this is this crazy woman <laughs> coming <laughs> and terrorizing us, waiting, waiting there always uh, and just knocking on every door. So it was decided early just on circumstance that you would be a professional chess player from a very young age. Oh, yeah. At the age of nine. You, you already knew and your, your family already knew that this is your path. Yeah, I think they basically told me. So there, there was a little problem as well with my school. Because <clears throat> Yerevan was a very multicultural city. But, you know, after, uh, during the war, after the war, and also financial troubles, we had lots of Russian people, and lots of people of different ethnicities, but they all had to leave because financial problems, you know, and the Jewish population went to Israel. And so at one point, um, because my father is Jewish, at one point I was almost the only blonde kid in the school. Mm. And I didn't speak good Armenian. And uh, every day would turn into a, a fight. I would go into the school you know, and the kids would start bullying me because I didn't look like them. Mm. And I didn't speak the language well. And when the, because we had some type of uh, 
I, I think all the Soviet countries went through the same thing. There was some rise of nationalism. They mm-hmm. said, we're going to ban all the schools of different languages. Just leave a couple schools that are in Russian. So there was only one school that uh, you could study and uh, just knowing Russian. But it was so far from my house. And especially when you, know, when you don't have electricity or water, uh, transport also doesn't really work. I mean, in my part of the city, I saw things like uh, uh, first aid uh, cars mm. on a horse carriage mm. because there is no petrol. <laughs> so you can imagine growing up in this time and everything is frozen. They're, uh, going to the school was a big deal. Very difficult. So, and uh, since spending time in Armenian school was always uh, difficult because of, uh, you know, those circumstances, my parents said, okay, you better do something else. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely, as you said, it's very risky Mm -hmm. what my parents did, but it wasn't uh, because there was a huge variety of yeah. choices there's no plan b basically <laughs> yeah that, that's and actually we discussed this a while ago i don't remember exactly when but you did mention that very early on and this stuck with me you became pretty much the uh, breadwinner mm-hmm. in, in the family at a very young age can you uh, speak a bit about that and when did that happen okay um since my mother managed to get some sponsorship um there was one uh, very nice person uh, he was uh, he had a airplane that he was using to carry goods mm-hmm. and um, take it to odessa and back and uh, he was helping me i mean his family and later there was uh, i think he was the minister of, uh, not the minister, what would be the word? The, the tax department, mm-hmm. revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, financial minister, something yes, like that. Yes, yeah, something like that. He the also, treasurer, maybe. No, no, it's something to do with taxes. You mm-hmm. know, the tax collector's yeah. office. Yeah. yeah. So that person also started helping me. And then uh, once I started getting some results, uh, the minister of transport, and communication started helping me because uh, he was working with my father. Um, so the reason why it was my mother doing all of this, my dad is very calm. He's a scientist. If you tell him to do this thing, he will do it perfectly. If you tell him, you know, here, please take care of this, he will always do it perfect. But his own initiative is, you know, he wouldn't go and knock on the doors and say, help my son. Because I think it's also a Jewish thing. Jewish people like to put themselves down and say, oh, everybody can do this thing that mm. you're doing. You know, he, he wouldn't be going like my mom and saying, this kid is special. He's a very methodical person. Methodical and, more and also very humble. Yeah. So when you're very humble, of course, you cannot push for others to support. Sometimes it can work against you, I guess. I, I've yeah. thought about this quality that you say your father has. And 
I think it's a very useful quality for a chess player because we're not we're already given the parameters on the chessboard. <laughs> so we just have to it's not like creating a piece of art. It's a bit different. Yeah, you don't create something from scratch. You kind of work things out on the chessboard. I, I sometimes felt like chess players have this quality where it's difficult to take the initiative, but to to figure out something that's uh, you know already its own world that that we're quite good at. And do you feel like you have some of the qualities from your mother and your father? Like you oh, have some... for sure, for sure. Uh, I also share it with you. I think like that. And so, what my father's job was. He was growing crystals for lasers. So I would go to his lab. Each uh, stone, it has to be totally pure, 99.9%. Mm. Mm. So you kind of uh, grow it with water. You basically do what happens in nature, and you put uh, you know, water on it, and you try to modify it to be totally pristine. And it would, of course, uh, each uh, stone, it takes continuous work of, let's say, 20, 25 hours. You have to look at the spot and you have to control the process. Control at pressure, at water, and you have to know how it works. I think it's, it was very useful for me mm. to have... Uh, it's discipline. Yeah. yeah, you know, the discipline, attention... Mm -hmm. And also the fact that I wouldn't get bored, because that's one problem with a lot of chess players, kids. Yeah, long games. <laughs> I, can, I was always getting bored as a kid during long games. I like to play Blitz and Bullet, but long chess, it took, took a lot of time for me to get used to it. I think especially nowadays that is going to be a huge problem, yeah, with social media and with all the distractions out there, it's going to be so difficult for, like, kids to actually become chess players. I think we're going to see diminishing numbers of But of, it seems to be the opposite, no? Kids are playing, getting stronger and stronger at younger ages. At least that's how it In seems. In some parts of the world, yes. Well, yes. so the game has changed. Nowadays, the game is less deeper because we forgot how to play deeper chess. Mm. I forgot myself. I played so much Blitz and Rabbit <laughs> yeah. that I don't have this concentration to sit there and say, okay, let's figure this out. Mm-hmm. I'm more like an instinct player, and that's something that uh, is a definite drawback that uh, I need to come back to my and, roots. And it's more practical now, because even in, in our classical games, the time control is rather shortened. Yeah. So you can't spend so much time without compromising, you know, getting into time trouble later. And, and uh, I don't, like, players tend to avoid time trouble. Like, everyone, everyone is afraid of time trouble. Mm -hmm. I noticed it with Magnus first that he hates to get into time trouble. He avoids it at all costs. Hmm. And then with other players as well. Everything's sped up, you know? Yeah. No, this is something I, I always thought about. And I understood early on the main drawback of me as a player that the use of time is terrible. <laughs> I, I, never, I never understood how to use my time. <laughs> but Sometimes you usually play super fast at the beginning and whenever you get winning positions, you have enough time to actually convert those. But quite often I, I can play very fast and quite often I can get in time trouble when I don't have to. Mm. So this is... I mean, when I'm saying it's terrible, I'm <laughs> saying for my level, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. But that's, that's a very difficult thing to master, actually. Especially when the time is continuously changing. Yeah. 
anyway. you don't know what will that's the biggest issue because you don't know what will happen later in the game so you don't know when you will need the time it's uh, one of the hardest skills in chess yeah time, oh proper time management um i i noticed like very often in our games you would you would almost always be winning uh when we were just starting to play but at some point i would get chances any you would n- normally win anyway uh, because I would be in time trouble and you would have like hour and a half on the clock. Hmm. But sometimes I would get chances because you liked to play super fast even in winning positions and and sometimes make some inaccuracies. Like I remember that in Vikings A we played this game. The in, Berlin, yeah. In 2012. No, not that one. Uh, that was that was 2013. But in 2012 it was this English. Um, and I kept oh, yeah, yeah, going yeah. into this English against you and every time you would you would be crushing me. But... At some point in the game, I was down a rook, but I had these uh, connected pass pawns. C5, D4, you Yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very, very close. <laughs> but uh, still, you won the game. But at some point, I was getting very serious chances to survive. Um, and I, I like, noticed this trend happen that you would, even in winning positions, I, I felt like you wanted to dominate your opponent. Not just to beat them, but also to... No, no, I, I think the reason was that I just uh, never mastered that. It's one of the difficult things, and I never managed to get it because generally it's so difficult with time changing continuously. I mean, especially that I started playing, uh, when I just started playing, it was also a, a little bit of a German. Mm-hmm. I think I played for two years with the German. And then starts, uh, we're getting used to this uh, format with. Uh, two hours, 40 moves, one hour, and then suddenly it shortens and shortens. So it just drove me crazy. It just, uh, yeah, for me, I didn't have that experience that you had early (laughs) on. But I remember the time control kept shortening at some point, like the classical was 90 minutes with a 30 second increment, and that was it. And then we suddenly shifted to like so much rapid and blitz Hmm. that those like, well, the candidates recently had this this uh, very long time control. But besides that, it's it's quite rare now to have long time controls. Yeah. Which one do you enjoy more nowadays? The rapid or getting back, let's say, to the classical time controls and experiencing those? those... I actually don't care. I mean, you don't care too much? If it's nothing that is in my control, <laughs> I can just relax. <laughs> Which one do you feel you're uh, performing better in? tough to say i mean depends sometimes i think i play very well in blitz i think i should have won in warsaw uh, last year i was dominating the tournament and then closer to the end i think i just got tired Mm. and then uh, sometimes i have very good results in rapid and classical i think generally if you're a good player uh, that's i i think this is all old times of Mythology. I think it started with uh, Topi. Mm. Topi kept on telling people that he's such a bad uh, <laughs> blitz and rapid player that people started believing that this thing exists. And then people started talking about Fabi being not a good uh, blitz and rapid player, yeah. <laughs> being yeah. the second Topi. <laughs> and he proved many Th- people. Things are changing very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It proved many people wrong. <laughs> Such things don't exist. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do want to speak about it because you. Uh, it felt like you spoke very fondly of uh, Gabby 
Gabriel Sargisian and your friends in Armenia. And you guys did have some incredible results as, as a team. Uh, you are a three-time Olympic uh, gold medalist with the team. So that's just, that's simply impressive. When in times when you guys did not have on paper, at least the strongest team, right? Russia had in incredible teams as well. How did you guys manage that team? Or you were obviously the leader and hmm. you were inspiring everybody and everybody on the team. How would you describe those years? In the Olympic oh, this this were brilliant years. I mean, it's not just Olympic, also the World Championship. Yeah, back in the day when World Championship was a serious tournament, not a rapid event. <laughs> like this year, World Team Championship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I think the reason why we're playing well. So, um, when the generation changed, and Gabi and I uh, became uh, stable members of the team. We had some kind of uh, system. Mm. I told to our federation that we're not going to have any nepotism anymore. So we have a clear system how you're going to qualify for the team. Because back in the day, I mean, we had that happening that I became Armenian champion and I had a higher rating than somebody else, but I never made it to the team. Not mm. a single chance. Because this, is, this old boys club, yeah. right. old, all the, all the connections, <laughs> and, yeah. the old boys club. That's a good one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> they would keep on, uh, you know. And when uh, journalists would ask them, "Why isn't this young, talented guy playing in team?" Oh, he's he doesn't have a correct uh, attitude for team tournament. He's a bit too egoistic and. But how were the results at that point when they were choosing based on nepotism? I would assume the results were not as good, right? I was crushing or, those guys. I was crushing no, those guys. No, but them as a team, when they were going with the no, subpar team, well. were they still doing I mean, well? they were playing very well. Because yeah. as a coach or as a captain, you cannot sustain your career if your your results are not good, right? No, because these uh, guys uh, like uh, Anastasian, uh, Minasian, they were always uh, underrated. Mm. They're very good players. And I cannot really claim that I was better than them at the age of 18 or 16, 17. But uh, if it was in any other country, I'm guessing if I had uh, less rating and my federation was thinking about progress of the young players in the country, they would probably choose me rather than somebody who's maybe like 15 years older than me. Mm. And so, yeah, so when we came to the team, we said, that's it. Four, I think there was six players back then. Mm -hmm. Five players by rating and the champion of Armenia. And this just removed the whole tension. Because back in the day, you were thinking, oh, I got to be friends with the, this guy from mm. the Federation. Politics. He's pulling strings. And it was just super clear. Nobody had any objections. Nobody was angry. And also, the former president of our country, uh, Serge Sargsyan, uh, he did something uh, which was uh, also um, very motivating. He said, okay, guys, if you play well, uh, I mean, the government will provide for you. 
you'll get good kind of uh, financial gains from it. Mm. And this was also motivating because a lot of these guys, you know, I mean, even Gabi, who's a very strong player, he wouldn't earn a lot of money throughout the year. And we had a great team, Akopian, Gabi, me. Then uh, we brought back Mofsi. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we had type of an approach that uh, we would share our knowledge. Because we were a team and uh, we were uh, at that moment, uh, you know, not really sure that we will have any other chances to win this tournament or to come to, to come top three. We would be very motivated like that. I think our results would continue being great. But at some point, we had some misunderstanding in in team, and I kind of got disappointed, and uh, I think uh, I wasn't really part of the team anymore. I was playing the team, but not really kind of pushing for it. I think it happened uh, before the Baku Olympiad. Before 2016? Yeah, because... uh, I think it was Ilum Jinov. He came to Armenia and he asked for us to play. And, well, we're, of course, in a conflict situation. And then I told to my guys in a team that I do want us to go. I really want us to go. And also uh, our president of federation and the country, he said, okay, guys, go. Mm. And for me, you know, I look at life and I think... Life is just a challenge. If you have a chance to go into a country that your country is in a war with and to win there, you know, it's a historical chance. Absolutely. You might not get such chance in your lifetime. Just to do it, you know, just to try it. Were your teammates worried about danger, especially in case your team would win in a country where... Yes. Which is very hostile to your own, where there's yes, a lot yes, of they animosity. Were. They were worried, but... Uh, I I would understand if they would be kind of, okay, we're worried, let's not do that. But from one side, they were feeding me information that, yeah, let's go, let's do this. And from the other side, they were pulling some strings to make it impossible. So I felt, you know, I felt betrayed. Mm-hmm. Were these the players on the team or? Yeah, kind of players, coaches. And I felt, you know... I mean, if you guys are not willing to take a risk, if you guys are not willing to uh, try and do something historical mm-hmm. that you know you'll you'll remember all your life, then I cannot be a part of this because what we did uh, throughout these years was historical. Oh yeah, winning three Olympiads yeah. and winning world championship and always fighting for the top. I, I also won uh, European. Team championship. Uh, and we came second, third, many times. So I felt, you know, this is betraying the spirit of the team. This is not what we do. This is not what we are. And then I, I kind of, okay, I was playing, trying to play my best, but I was not really helping the guys anymore. It's because an intangible, they never, right? They, they never apologized. Right. This spirit is an intangible that, once you lose it, it's so difficult to uh, to regain 
back, right? Once this trust is broken, pretty much it's so difficult to uh, regain Yes, I back. mean, if I find out that you're speaking, spreading some rumors about me, oh, uh, no. you know, <laughs> I know you're doing that. <laughs> no, but, but if I find out that the yeah. person who I trust, person who I go to war with, because it is a war. team tournament yeah. is a yeah, war. it is. Is talking to people and saying that, oh, Lev is getting money for bringing us to Baku, spreading such rumors among other people. And that's just, okay, am I that guy? Did I ever do anything like that for you to have? They're attacking your character at yes. that point. Yeah. And that was just too much for me because never in my life I've taken any bribes or you know, did something without telling to my friends. I mean, my loyalty is something that I'm very proud of and something that I cherish the most in my life. Mm. And in your inner circle as well. This, yes. this must have been very difficult because a lot of the players that you played with and worked with, they were also your personal friends, I'm sure. Of course, of course. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. We've fallen out a bit after that. Mm. Actually, I was reading about your career a little bit, and uh, you mentioned Malik as being one of your initial coaches. But then in 2011, you started working with Nadanian. Um, and at the time, you said that he's irreplaceable. Uh, you used those words. Now, I checked him, and of course, he's a theoretician, but again, he's not like a super grandmaster or anything of that nature. What made him irreplaceable in your eyes? Uh, his character. I think his dedication. And uh, I think we share the same principles about life. Mm. And that uh, was very important for me at that moment. Uh, we, we haven't been working together for a couple Since of then, years. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, because, uh, you know... Circumstances change. I didn't change my uh, respect and love for him as a person, but now I'm looking for something else, uh, you know, to do in the game of chess. So I kind of said, okay, maybe things are not working ideally for us. Hmm. But uh, as a person, he's one of the dearest people to me. He's very pure and very. Uh, Loyal and mm. gentle. Mm. Speaking of people you worked with, you were always like a longtime martial player, right? You were famous for being the best martial player in the world for a long time. And then also a lot of Armenian players followed suit. Was it, was it that they were working with you and then they all started to play openings that you were working on? Or was it that you took some ideas from them? It went both ways, actually. Um, well, I worked... Uh, for a long time with uh, Gabi, mm -hmm. then uh, we always, I mean, it wasn't my doing actually, this is Gabi's doing. He always involved young players. Which is a very smart idea. Yes. In general, yeah. I was always kind of, oh, you know, let's uh, have a training session. And he would say, let's invite this guy, let's invite this guy. So we kind of invited Melkomian, we invited Pashikyan, uh, then uh, Manuel Petrosian, now. A bit more recently, yeah. Yes. And uh, 
No, I love this because uh, we kind of managed uh, to bring this new generation of players who are, I think the most important are good people. <laughs> because, you know, you're not just playing chess. You also, as a, as a person playing international tournaments, you're representing your nation, your country. And that's what we want to do. We want people to know that Armenians are good people. Mm. Fabi, you also mentioned this idea of inviting um, young players and that it's a very smart idea. Elaborate a bit about that. Why do you think it's uh, it's a good idea? Well, it was. I, I was actually the same as you. I, I always had an idea that, okay, the guys I know, we, we've worked together a lot, so let's have a training session. And uh, then at some point, Rustam was saying, well, maybe it's a good idea to invite some young guys who have some fresh ideas. And, um, and then when I was working more recently with Chuchulov, he was also like, a, there's, this, there's this young guy, he's like uh, 20 years old at the time he was. Uh, well, I think he still is 20. <laughs> and uh, he has some good ideas. It's just like, it's like a fresh approach, you know? Um, because we also tend to get set in our own ways, right? We have, we have our vision of chess. And if we're working with some coach, who is maybe from slightly older generation than us, like for you is Nadanyan. Yes. me, Rustam is slightly not, I mean, he's not an old player, but he's a slightly older generation yes. than me. Um, and of course, everyone has valuable ideas, but but uh, sometimes we're only seeing our vision, mm -hmm. right? And you get some young guys and you think, okay, they don't know anything about chess. They're young. They they have no experience, but still they uh, they have valuable ideas, which is... It's good to have that different... I absolutely agree with you. And quite often we're learning from them. Mm -hmm. you know, because I uh, I started looking... I'm always looking to learn things. Mm. I started looking... These kids are always playing bullet or things mm -hmm. like this. And I thought, maybe it's useful. Maybe it's useful to see like uh, simple tactics. Mm -hmm. You know, just to imprint this in your mind. That, okay, this position has simple tactics like this. Or, you know, also to start playing many openings. Well, speaking of, I mean, Hikaru made, uh, you know, like one of the best chess careers in history based on his uh, skill in, in fast time controls, right? I mean, of course, he was also a great player in general, but that he's the best bullet player or one of the best blitz players. Um, so a lot of players, like I, I was always told, you know, as a kid, like don't play bullet chess. I remember I got reprimanded once. I was playing too much bullet on ICC. And I was working with Avruk at the time, and he told my father, do you know, people are telling me he's playing bullet at <laughs> 2 in the morning. <laughs> and then they were like, no, you can't play any more bullet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's also useful. I mean, now these kids, they, they realize you can play everything. It's all useful for chess. Absolutely. I always heard this about my obsession with Buckhouse. People <laughs> mm. mm. told me, no, this guy's crazy. You know, you're, you're warping your mind to think that you might have some extra piece. But in fact, uh, I think it's useful for attacks and it's useful for fantasy. Mm -hmm. And also for training your mind in general, just to think. So you don't, your mind doesn't get stale, you know, or you don't get lazy. Okay. I think it's any kind of chess stuff is good. Even, Even uh, the duck, duck chess? Duck chess. <laughs> Even duck chess, yeah. <laughs> but coming from like a cultured background, classically cultured background, let's say, 
it's almost difficult to accept the fact that, yeah, maybe um, I should be playing some bullet occasionally, maybe two, three hour sessions of bullet. Maybe that's actually going to help me. I was personally not raised with online chess too much. But when I first arrived into the US and I started seeing everybody just like playing online, ICC, after that, chess.com and things of that nature and spending so many hours. Um, and of course, being also uplifted this type of chess by guys like Hikaru, by you as well on ICC, were always there. Uh, I, w I had at some point, I was forced to say, yeah, I cannot only play classical chess. I have to start preparing in this uh, faster time control. Mm. Was it some sort of attraction in your mindset to make that jump and start doing it? Well, I'm very self-critical. Mm. I mean, my friends who know me, that I always try to understand how can I improve or what can I do. Of course, sometimes you go in the wrong way, but generally, this is what I like to do. And so I always look for, you know, to see... Uh, analyze my games from a side and see what uh, what is missing there and yeah I realized that I think by playing lots of blitz I definitely improved my blitz and bullet I definitely I'm definitely a better blitz player than I ever was mm. I mean uh, and uh, if if I continue doing that uh, I, I think I'll keep my level in in blitz or bullet or rapid uh, because now this is very important speaking of that actually blitz bullet rapid hikaru you might be playing hikaru in a speed chess championship he hasn't won his match yet i think he has to play paravion uh, but in case uh, he wins that's going to be a match between you and him what's your uh, experience in rapid time controls with hikaru I think I've beaten him a couple of times in those um, Magnus' tour. Uh, generally, of course, it's a tough opponent to play online. My biggest disadvantage is uh, I grew up with MS-DOS, you know? <laughs> yes, I remember those. You yeah. know, this, <laughs> yeah. all these commands with keyboard. I never <laughs> learned to use the mouse. And so, <laughs> and I have never played those contract strikes or anything like that. So I never really uh, managed to learn how to really operate it. So that's definitely his advantage. Mechanics, but, yeah. But yeah. when you played on Draken, uh, you know, I was I was watching live, and you were struggling in the three minute. I think you won the five minute yes. narrowly in the three minute. You were struggling, and going into bullet, you had a pretty serious deficit, like three points, right? Yes. And you completely dominated him in bullet, which. Surprised some people because they thought, I mean, you don't play bullet much, so normally uh, you might not be so experienced or a bit rusty in it, but then you completely uh, dominated him and won the match based on that. No, well, I started playing a bit on some secret <laughs> accounts, you know, <laughs> how it works. I think it's good. Yeah, yeah, it can't, I mean, especially these days, because we have to play bullet every once in a while now in these matches, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, Levon, something big changed in your life recently. You became a father. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the floor is yours. Speak to us <laughs> about uh, your daughter. Well, my daughter's name is Isabel. She is, it's an Armenian name, a uh, name uh, of our queen. 
daughter of King Levon, so <laughs> easy name choice. Um, and also, I really like, uh, we have a poet uh, and a singer, famous singer with that name, so I like that name. And so she's very, I mean, she has a lot of character. <laughs> she's uh, 42 days old. She's not sleeping. She always wants attention. <laughs> But it's the greatest joy of life. You know, it's so relaxing. Holding your baby in your hands. It's, uh, it's a wonderful feeling. A feeling that I never had. And I'm, I'm very happy. And uh, something that I look forward to, you know, uh, teaching her things. Teaching, uh, hopefully, teaching her the the ways to be a good person. <laughs> a lot of things change, obviously, when you become a father. I I want to know about how your view of the world changed. Uh, your goals have changed in any way? Or are you oh, inspired definitely. by her in any way? Definitely, I think I'm now more motivated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to play and uh, to. To create and to be an example for my daughter, you know, to be proud of Teddy. Mm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Fabi, do you want to be a father? <laughs> 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 are, are you interested in that? Or <laughs> and not, probably not anytime soon. But, uh, yeah, I can imagine it's very inspiring as well. Let's speak also because we did speak about your. Um, part of the career when you were representing Armenia, but now uh, you're a part of the U.S. Olympic team. Mm -hmm. And uh, you actually played for uh, the first time, represented the United States at the Olympiad in India. Tell us about your experience. What are the differences, um, the imposing differences between the Armenian team and the United States team, and uh, also the similarities? Uh Well, of course, it's a great pleasure to play in a team with such strong players like Fabi, Lanier, Wesley. I mean, it's uh, it's a different feeling. The reason why we played badly, well, I, I think at some point all of us got sick. I, uh, I don't know if I had COVID or not, but it was looking like it. Mm. And uh, it was... I mean, the organization tried to do everything, but uh, summer in India is definitely not an easy time to spend. Yeah. And uh, so I was uh, a bit out of it, so I couldn't really play my best. But the feeling in the team is great. I think we had a great time, uh, you know, walking around and... Uh, having each other's company and uh, no it was i think uh, this is uh, some uh, experience that uh, reminded me of my time in armenian team uh, which uh, despite the fact that it's very different there i was a clear leader in armenian team and uh, but here i also feel like uh, i mean from coming from players i have a lot of respect and uh, a lot of uh, players uh, like my attitude because uh, 
I, I really enjoy analyzing and talking about chess and preparing together. And uh, maybe I'll manage to bring this culture into American team just to hang out together and uh, enjoy being part of something big. You know, I actually noticed it for the first time because I played in the U.S. team for since 2016. And we would have these team meetings, but we wouldn't discuss openings too much. And this time we started to discuss openings a bit more. And usually among top players, it's very guarded, you know, like top players don't want to, to share things. But we had this funny story because um, Robert Hess was our coach, right? Yes. And at some point I'm preparing and I think you were resting that day. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. And um, so we were kind of discussing some line that my opponent might play that day. And it was a line in Neidorf. And, uh, and suddenly Robert, just out of the blue, suggests some, some move to us in the Neidorf. And normally you suggest a move without a computer. It's uh, not going to be a good one, right? But it turned out to be a very interesting one. And I didn't get a chance to use it that day. Uh, because my opponent deviated, but anyway, uh, I got a good position. But then a few weeks later, or maybe it was even more than a few weeks, uh, you were playing Maxime <laughs> in the Thinkfield Cup, and uh, suddenly this position comes on the board, and you play this move. And I, I actually was very happy to see it played, because I, you know, I'm always worried that like, you find some idea, and then someone else plays it. Um, but it's good to see when your ideas actually come on the board. Yeah, for sure. And especially, you know, our relationship between me, Fabiano, and Lanier. Well, we're living in St. Louis and we're good friends. I think there is a lot of warmth mm. in this relationship. And, uh, okay, now I didn't spend much time with the guys because I spent time with my daughter, you know, just... Uh, but uh, I bought a house. Congratulations. I'm, yes, yeah. uh, I'm going to move there, and uh, that's when the parties are going to start. <laughs> Big changes. <laughs> Big changes. Now, actually, one of the things uh, in relationship also to the Olympic team, um, and I do believe you mentioned this already, you guys were having camps before the tournament as well. Now, I don't think that happens currently with the U.S. Olympic team. We didn't, didn't have that before this Olympiad, no. Do you think this might become some sort of a thing that will happen in the future? Do you predict that at all? I, I hope to talk to the either Federation or St. Louis Chess Club that supports the team you know, to organize that. I think that would be very useful. Yeah, I, I mean, I would be open to it, but I, I don't know if all players would be open to it. You know, because still, like, let's say a guy like Wesley, he's kind of, he's very private in his approach to chess. Mm. He doesn't work with uh, other players so often, from what I know. Like, I, um, you know, we, we worked a bit. I worked, uh, for example, back in the day with, like, Boris Gelfand. Yes. But Wesley, I don't know if he, he worked with other top players. So maybe it would take some adjustment for some guys to be used to this, you know? Yeah, it's definitely a completely different approach. I do know that Wesley tried to work with Tukmakov. Um, I don't think that worked oh, out he, very well. He worked well. with um, now I'm just he worked with Var Varushanikobian yes. at Varushan. some point and we, and, and Jeffrey and Jeffrey yeah. briefly Jeffrey, and also I, well when we were preparing in 2018 we were working very closely with Lenier of course. Yeah, that was. Um, so so sorry to interrupt. The way we were doing it in Armenia 
we would have the team and the junior team mm, all okay. working together. Okay. So we should also do that here. I think mm -hmm. that would be good to get, you know, Jeffrey, uh, uh, Savian. Uh, yeah. Shankman. Coming back to the idea of having uh, young players around you. Yeah. I think this is very good. You know, you, you work together, you come up with ideas like, The, the thing is, there is so much stuff still in the game of chess that you can learn that you can always work on something that nobody knows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, what we normally did we would uh, in our minion team, we would get together and just specifically prepare a certain opening for the certain tournament mm -hmm. out of the blue from scratch. Mm. And this would surprise a lot of people. Probably. Yeah, this would yeah. be a very good idea. Generally. I think these days it's even easier to find ideas. Mm. Um, like it feels like chess should be more explored and there should be less defined mm. but also technology is getting better and better and constantly showing us some new things <laughs> and whenever I check some opening that I haven't checked for a few years I'm surprised I think I did so much work in this opening and didn't even scratch the surface compared to to what you can find today except for Berlin <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> Berlin is impossible that's a big problem <laughs> that's a big problem yeah. no I was like uh, the Berlin oh man So I started working on this opening in 2012. Okay, many, many years after you were already working on it for sure. But I was working with Chuchilov and he was um, like, I found the refutation of the Berlin. Wow, beautiful. <laughs> and I played it, the refutation, against Karyakin in Bilbao in 2012. You were also playing there, right? Uh-huh. And uh, I get to the position on the board and I'm about to make the move, which is like the refutation. More or less, the computer says zeros, but then so slowly the computer starts to get outplayed. And then I realize that he simply has this move rook g6, and I'm forced to move my g-pawn up, and my pawns get fixed. You, you probably recognize the variation I'm talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, well, wait, what, what am I supposed to do if he plays this rook g6? And so I can't make the move that we prepared because I realize rook g6, like, uh, it's just my pawns are fixed and it's completely done. I have no advantage. And so I make some other move, king g2. And after the game, my, my, uh, Chuchal was like, why didn't you play this move? And I'm like, but what about rook g6? And then we realized that the computer was completely leading us astray. That uh, it thought G5 and white's better for some reason. The computers back then were, uh, still didn't have the positional understanding that they have now. It said like, you know, white has significant advantage. Uh, so still it was possible to outplay a computer a bit. But this refutation, I thought it was so funny. Just two minutes thinking at the board <laughs> refuted like this uh, two weeks of preparation for the refutation So supposed reputation. No, I had a story like this. I think in 2006, I played in Dagomis against Chucky. And then I prepared some line, and uh, I knew that it works, and the computer was showing minus two and a half. And then I get this position. Okay, I know it's minus two and a half, but I don't see a move. <laughs> so I lose the game like a patser. I come to check with the computer. It is minus two and a half gets to minus two but it's not clear what to do so i said that this is a dangerous line so not long ago i was checking this game just to see you know interesting uh because unusual that the computers think that black is better okay the modern computer show plus one and a half <laughs> <laughs> what was the year of it 2008 you said or? 2006 i think 2006 okay that, i don't remember that game but it would be interesting to see It's this, uh, it's, you know, in this A4, B4 marshal, uh -huh. where you take D, E, knight, E5, anti-marshal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there is some queen F3, knight, D2, knight, F1. Yeah. 
and then I play bishop b7, bishop c5, king h8, knight e4. Mm -hmm. So he, his knight is already on g3. Yeah, yeah. So knight takes e4, f5, knight c5, bishop f3, gf. So ah. the computer back in the day thinks the queen is just... Mm -hmm. Queen but is so much pieces, stronger than three, three pieces. pieces, of course. Yeah, this yeah. is one thing that um, computers used to underestimate enormously. Like it was very famous in these Grunfeld lines, yeah, where white plays e5. Yes. Um, and then takes on f6, takes on g7, and black wins the queen with yes. like bishop e6, yeah? And white gets these three pieces. And I remember like early computers, maybe not so early, but like let's say some early version of Ripka would say more or less like black is winning. Minus mm -hmm. one. Yeah, mm -hmm. something like this. Mm -hmm. I know. And then I know. you realize like, okay, three pieces, of course, are... Uh, even we understood it back then, but it was still difficult to disagree with the computer. And now, of course, computers say like plus one and and confirm our old intuition, which is kind of nice, yeah, that our intuition <laughs> was holding up objectively. But yeah, I, I, I know exactly the variation you talk, you're talk you talking about, in the, but I don't remember exactly the game against Evenchuk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I lost like a complete passer, and I was so angry at myself for not analyzing it deeper. Hmm. And then I went back to the room mm. the same day I analyzed the position for five hours and I concluded that I don't understand what he wants and yeah you know. but somehow every year it changes right we feel like whenever we are in the moment we're analyzing with like the strongest entities that will ever be right and we trust them fully and then next year the next stockfish comes and it shows completely new variations yeah. and new evaluations and then our whole mindset changes. Yes, our, our uh, illusions yeah. are basically computer solutions. Yeah. Our variations are, I mean, when we're claiming something, quite often we're claiming computers. Computers, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it always changes. Every single year it changes. Actually, uh, every new iteration of Stockfish changes. And that's the beauty, stuff. because it says that those guys back in the day understood chess very well. Mm. Because like some openings, let's say, that were abandoned because of early computers, let's say, this uh, orthodox uh, queen's gambit, bishop e7, c6, mm -hmm. knight mm -hmm. yasser's mm -hmm. pet line. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, computers, I mean, already for three, four years, mm -hmm. understand that black is totally fine. To, yeah. Even like Makagono variation or things like that, yeah, which they're probably fine as well, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of classical lines, which at some point were considered like a bit better for white, and then we realize, yeah, they're like modern engines, they, they showed us that most things are playable mm -hmm. rather than the other way around uh that the stronger you play the more you can make things playable even some lines which were previously considered very very dubious especially if you're a masochist like fabi <laughs> <laughs> he's, so, he's known to be choosing the worst possible <laughs> line of the opening and continuing to play it <laughs> No, it's it's true. I I was always attracted to the bad. I mean, we spoke about this yesterday, even. Yeah. Always at some point at the Olympiad, we were discussing with Wesley, and uh, I'll, I'll make some moves on the board. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. This is the weirdest chess set, by the way, I've ever seen in my life, I have to say. The bishops are split in two. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, this is Fabi's proud moment. So, so I'll, I'll tell the story about this. Uh, this is a very well-known theoretical position. White plays bishop d3, more or less black equalizes with old methods, which were discovered a long time ago. And at some point, I'm with uh, Rustam Kazimjanov, and I'm also with uh, 
Dieter Nisipianu. Mm -hmm. And Rustam suggests a move, F3. <laughs> and more or less, it's clear that the move either wins a piece or black plays queen h4, forcing g3. Well, there's no other move. Take, take. Wins a rook on h1. White plays a move, queen f2. And computer says, like, minus two and a half to three. And Rustam was like, yes, but let's analyze it. So we analyze this for a few days, this position. More or less, black wins with some very, very difficult ways. Black can win, objectively winning. Or black can get a good position with some other more natural ways. And then at some point, I'm playing a rapid match against Wesley. And I played this. And he thought for years that I just like mouse slipped more or less, that I was, I just made a mistake by playing F3. And then in the Olympiad, I told him, no, I prepared this for days. For <laughs> I prepared this line for He's days, garbage, yes. <laughs> which is minus three, you know, like computers just say it's losing. And okay, he played something. I, I guess don't queen exactly. h5. Or? Yeah, yeah, he played queen h5. Um, so how do you catch it? I mean, Bishop I think it's D3, like Bishop probably D3. F6, yeah. I guess. Huh? Yeah, it's like somewhere F6. Uh, something with like, queen h2 right something like this happens with bishop g5 white regains the exchange i don't remember exactly and because equalizes comfortably <laughs> <laughs> yeah at some point i equalized in this i equalized in this game and then later lost because even after you equalize you still have to play accurately <laughs> so there was no point equality, yeah. more or less if black knows nothing like he wesley was just playing practically you know just very fast moves and he got to position of course it's not the best way for black but even if he does this Still, uh, you know, there's no point to it. I think it's actually continuing like here, 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 and here, more or less. Uh, Something like this. Yeah. It actually looks like French. Yeah, yeah. Good French, very good French. Yeah. So good French for them, yeah. Wesley was shocked when I told him, "No, no, this was uh, my preparation." <laughs> the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, yeah. Well, Levon, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. Um, Thank you for joining us. We haven't done one of these in-person interviews in a while. Perfect. And uh, you, you came in dressed, super sharp. Now you, you kind of made me feel bad about myself. <laughs> this guy always looks good. So, yeah, uh, we'll see you tonight at the gala. We're yeah, going to have a lot pleasure. of fun. That, uh, that will be a lot of fun. So thank you very much for joining us. And thank hopefully you. we'll have you in future episodes as well. Thank you. Great. Thank you, guys.